The Daily Rios, episode 395, Dark Days, The Casting Breakdown. Hey everyone, this is your host Peter, back again with the third breakdown in a row, the third of four this week, this time taking a look at the second Dark Days one-shot entitled The Casting. And once again, the idea behind this breakdown episode is to go through a comic and explore the cast, explore what is being said, maybe pick up on some trivia, some some tidbits, some Easter eggs, and place them all into a larger context filtered through my experience with uh, the DC Universe. So this breakdown episode is going to go through page by page, and I'm going to detail a lot of the information that you're seeing here in this issue. Previous breakdown episodes include The Forged from Metal Ashcan and Dark Days The Forge One-Shot, and all of this is going to be followed up by a breakdown of Metal Number 1, which came out this week, and uh, I certainly can't wait to read that. Now, we got some feedback, which is awesome. Robert Kelly emailed and said, I love these footnotes podcasts. The first comics podcast I ever heard was one of the Crisis Tapes episodes, and I've been hooked ever since. I'm a little bit of a unique case in comics fandom, as I didn't seriously get into comics until 2014 when I was 28. Who said there are no more new readers? Uh, That's a lot of catching up to do, and CGS has been a treasure trove for me. That said, I am really glad you are podcasting again, and I enjoy nothing more than popping one of these podcasts on and following along. So thanks. Thanks, Robert, for that email. Really appreciate that. And uh, I believe he's a local guy, which is also cool. Also, Captain Colin of the Star Wars Conversations podcast uh, sent a message on Twitter and said, Um, that he's been enjoying these episodes as well. So to anyone else that retweeted or liked or listened, thanks, thanks, and more thanks. So let's get back at it, shall we? All right, this is Dark Days, The Casting, and we start with the cover, the cover by Jim Lee. Now, I looked up the word casting, just like I looked up the word uh, The Forge, and it says here, casting is a manufacturing process in which a liquid material is usually poured into a mold which contains a hollow cavity of the desired shape and then allowed to solidify. The solidified part is also known as a casting which is ejected or broken out of the mold to complete the process. And if you look at the cover title design for the logo, it's exactly that. It's all, it's the lettering cut out as if it's waiting for something to be poured into it. So that's really cool. Now that word, the casting and its definition is going to mean something later on in this issue as well. We get a blurb that says prelude to metal. This covers by Jim Lee and Scott Williams and it features Batman, Green Lantern, Joker, and Duke Thomas, and some kind of machine that we will learn about in this issue. My initial thought when I saw this cover image is how much it resembles a Jack Kirby image that uh, is sort of popular or sort of, sort of well-known. It's an image taken from New Gods, Number six from uh, around 1971 by Jack Kirby and Mike Royer. You have Orion and Light Ray, and they are bursting forth. I think the, the story is called The Glory Boat. And uh, you have uh, Light Ray riding this very metallic looking, oh, I don't know, it looks like some Kirby esque submarine. And he's saying, If we must die, let new Genesis live. And Orion is saying, if we go to the source, you demons go with us. And they are all riding this machine, and there's some boy draped over it. Uh, And it's this big splash page uh, that I will post in the show notes so you can see it. And uh, this cover image to the casting reminded me of that, whether it was intentional or not. Um, Some of the placement, some of the angle, the direction that the characters are facing 
uh, just felt the same. So again, it may be coincidental. Now there is a cover by Andy Kubert, which features Batman and Wonder Woman from a scene within the issue. And then John Romita Jr. has his own version of the cover, which is Joker versus Batman as Green Lantern looks on, which is also sort of from this issue. Once we get inside the issue, we're going to take this uh, scene by scene, sequence by sequence, I should say, starting off with the first three pages, pages one through three by Andy Kubert. And we kick off this issue with Hawkman and Hawkgirl. From the first page, Carter Hall's narration has once again placed Hawkman tidbits or or bits of continuity um, from later comics back into the Golden Age era. So what I mean here is he describes how he's known around the world by many different professions. In Cairo, he's an adventurer. In Athens, he's a philosopher. But in his small museum, he's an archaeologist. And this museum that he was at in the first decades of the 20th century was based in St. Roque. Now, St. Roque was the setting for the 2002 Hawkman series that followed his return back to comics uh, from Limbo, which is uh, something I talked about in the previous Forge Breakdown episode. So, yes, while that new Hawkman was Carter Hall that was brought back to life, the setting of St. Rook was new for that Hawkman 2002 series. Now, I haven't read that series in a long time, so maybe there's a reference in there that suggests that Carter Hall has always been in St. Rook, but as far as readers knew, that was the first time we were um, put into that base of operations in, in Louisiana. And it was the first time I thought that Hawkman was based in that uh, setting. So now we're saying even as early as the earliest decades of the 20th century, Carter Hall has always been or or has had a base in St. Rock. Now, usually the Hawks were in, I want to say, Midway City, which was a, a fictional DC Comics city. Um, I think the Golden Age Hawks were based there. I know the Silver Age alien hawks were based in Midway City, but now we're getting uh, a little bit of a retcon that suggests that St. Rock has always been part of the Hawkman mythos, which is fine, which is totally fine. Um, he continues with this examination of his profession uh, by saying, you know, that he is uh, an adventurer, a philosopher, an archaeologist, And he continues by saying, the job itself never changed. The human story is a mystery told by a billion unreliable narrators. And for the duration of our species, I have been nothing more than a detective. That's not a word usually used for Hawkman. And it's another new piece to the lore that gives him a more concrete hold within the DC universe. It just feels like his importance is ramping up, perhaps as a way to sidestep all of the muddy continuity that he's been involved with over the years. This feels like in their, in their attempt to reclaim and fix Hawkman, they have to almost make him so important to the DC universe. Now, this isn't new for the character. Um, Post-Crisis and post-Dark Knight Returns, post-Man of Steel, post-Wonder Woman by Perez, all of these revamps in the mid-80s. You know, DC was hot to remake many of their main properties. Green Arrow got the Longbow Hunters. Black Hawk got Blood and Iron. There was a Power of the Atom series. And we also got Tim Truman's Hawkworld three-issue miniseries that totally revitalized the Silver Age, Katar Hall, Silver Age version of um, Hawkman. It was a total re-examination of his Silver Age alien origin, beautifully drawn, beautifully written, But when it came time to do an ongoing series based on that concept, they set the adventures in present time, post-crisis, which meant the alien hawks came to Earth during the 80s and were never part of the original Justice League. So then, 
who were all those Hawk characters in the Justice League, right? You sort of had to fill in the gap. So what they did is DC decided to put Carter Hall into all of those adventures, as well as Shiera Hall, his wife. And he acted as a liaison between this new, younger JLA team and the older, more established JSA team. In effect, it gave Carter Hall... Uh, a loftier position within the DC continuity. You know, he was the chairman of the JSA for a long time, and now he's the elder statesman of the of the JLA. So this rebranding of Hawkman is something that they've been playing with for a while as they continued to mess up a lot of his continuity. Layers upon layers upon layers, right, when it comes to Hawkman. You got the Golden Age Hawkman. He's an archaeologist. He's a reincarnation of an of an Egyptian prince, a member of the JSA. Then you have the Silver Age alien hawks from Thanagar, members of the JLA. Then the crisis hits. Hawkworld brings the alien hawks from Thanagar to the present as if they've never existed. Carter Hall is now a liaison between the JLA and JSA. We learn that Katar Hall's father had visited Earth in the past and met Carter Hall. And then eventually everything gets even more confusing during Zero Hour when all of the Hawks, including Hawk Girl, the Golden Age Hawk Girl, merge together. And that combination has Katar Hall, the alien, as the dominant personality. Now, eventually, that version is cast into limbo, including most of the Hawk mythology. And that's when we get the return of Hawkman in that JSA story I talked about last issue, this time with Carter Hall as the dominant personality, and with the added twist that his ancient Egypt origin now includes a visit from a Thanagarian ship, which gives him nth metal, it gives him the Thanagarian racial memories, so that he can create this Hawkman identity. And then we're giving the, given the added notion that not only was he reincarnated once, but many times throughout the DC Universe with previously established DCU characters like Silent Knight, Nighthawk, etc. So that's, that's a lot of stuff to navigate and um, I feel what they're doing is they're trying to hit the high points and weeding out some of the stuff they don't want you to know about, especially like all the stuff that happened during Zero Hour. They also seem to be ignoring, at least as far as I know, the new 52 Savage Hawkman series. I haven't read that. I also haven't read the Death of Hawkman miniseries, although I know some of what it's about. So I have to imagine, you know, those things are being glossed over as a measure of correction. And uh, now with these two pages, the Hawkman universe is about to be expanded even more. Not only these two pages, but in another sequence we, we will see later on in this issue. Um, all right, so uh, one, one more little tangent here. This idea that Carter Hall is a different profession respective to different parts of the world was also something used for Martian Manhunter. So because he was an alien, he would travel the globe as a way to better understand humans. And John Jones would then create different identities based on each location. Sometimes he was a superhero, sometimes he was a detective, sometimes he was a woman, sometimes he was a cat. And in turn, he was almost better known as a superhero around the world than some of his uh, fellow members of the JLA. It really opened up his character and his purpose, and I feel like that's what they're doing here um, on these opening pages. I do like that we're seeing Shiera, that we're seeing Hawkgirl in all of these flashbacks, the Golden Age version. Um, we haven't seen her in a long time, and if you notice there on the first page, the museum directional sign says, The Tomb of Cheyera which is her given Egyptian name as of the, as of the uh, early 2000s. Other signs include the jewels of Nabu, which sounds dirty. Nabu belongs to Dr. Fate. And then uh, you see something that says Kandaki Artifacts, which is a reference to the home of Teth Adam, uh, Black Adam of the Shazam family, and is most likely spelled incorrectly here. Usually it's K-A-H-N-D-A-Q. So I'm not quite sure why, they, uh, why they're changing up the spelling here. 
Now, if we continue with this first page narration, it's a little bit more of the same that we heard last issue. Uh, reveal the secrets hiding in the darkest shadows, the truth buried deep beneath millennia of human memory. So Carter Hall's been saying this, Ganthit, the guardian of the universe, has been saying this last issue, and so has Joker. So clearly this is big stuff. Page two brings to the forefront something that I thought was abandoned or unfinished. So along his many travels, Carter has discovered that immortals walk the earth. And it says here, lurking out of sight in human history. So Carter apparently is the first to bring them together. And I have to imagine this is the first time we are seeing them. And if you count all the images, there are 13. 13 immortals. Now, this is a holdover from when Brad Meltzer wrote the JLA, Justice League of America, in 2006, where it was stated that 13 immortals walked the earth. This is from issue four of that series. So Black Canary learns that, uh, from Professor Ivo, who was the creator of Amazo, that 13 immortals walk this world Truly immortal, not perceived so through totems or magics. Always 13, that's the balance. And then Ivo also mentions that an immortal can die if they give up their spot to someone else. Now, at the time, like I said, I, I thought it was left unfinished. I believe they only discovered a few of those immortals, such as Professor Ivo. I guess we could speculate Immortal Man, Rachel Ghoul, Vandal Savage possibly Kid Eternity or Resurrection Man, or maybe Resurrection Man took over for Immortal Man. Of course, you have the Phantom Stranger. Um, so now this becomes a mix of established DCU continuity and the buildup for Immortal Men that we'll see with Dark Matter. And remember, we had a scene in Forge that dealt with Immortal Man. So um, if they're picking up those pieces, that is awesome, because I know that was something that was talked about back then. There have been other teams of immortals or magicians, um, teams like the Quintessence from Kingdom Come, Sentinels of Magic the, uh, from Day, Day of Judgment, the Trenchcoat Brigade from Vertigo, Shadow Pact, the Conclave, but uh, now we're getting uh, this new mystery or we're getting maybe finally a delineation of, of who these 13 uh, immortals actually are. Now, let's take a look at Carter's narration to see if we can find out some more information. He says, We had long heard rumors of the rhyming demon of Camelot, brothers who keep secrets and mysteries, a man as old as America, the grove of ancient humanoid plants, keepers of mysteries and secrets, of sorcerers, shining knights, cavemen, and phantom strangers of all stripes. All right, let's unpack that little blurb. So in last issue, in the Forge issue, in that scene with Immortal Man, I wondered if the other person in the scene could be Jason Blood. I'm still not sure. But when Carter says the rhyming demon of Camelot, that is definitely Jack Kirby's demon and Jack Kirby's Jason Blood. So that's easy enough. I still don't know if that's who that was, but, you know, that's who Carter is talking about. And then Carter says, brothers who keep secrets and mysteries. That's Cain and Abel, DC characters based on biblical versions, uh, who acted as hosts for DC's main two horror titles, or their horror anthologies. Cain was created in 1968 to run the House of Mystery, and Abel was created in 1969 to take over the hosting for House of Secrets. A man as old as America, that is Uncle Sam of the Freedom Fighters. And if you want a good example of that character, go read Alex Ross's two-part uh, miniseries from Vertigo called U.S., uh, for an, it's just an excellent, excellent series and gives you a nice overview of, of what that character means. The Grove of Ancient Humanoid Plants. This is from Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run from the 80s. The Parliament of Trees, they were created in 1986. These are plant elementals born when a being dies in flames and merges with the earth. These elementals become protectors of plant life throughout history. 
And it's interesting to note that post-Brightest Day, post-Blackest Night, when the original Golden Age Hawkgirl was restored, she eventually disappeared, and I believe she became an air elemental, which is kind of weird. Okay, Keepers of Mysteries and Secrets. Now, initially this seems like a mistake, or that the writers are just repeating themselves, um, repeating themselves, you know, like as a reference to Cain and Abel. But it could mean all the other various hosts of DC's horror line. For example, Eve and Destiny were both from Secrets of Sinister House and Weird Mystery Tales. Uh, Destiny is a member of Neil Gaiman's Endless Now. And then you had Lucian from Tales of Ghost Castle. You had the Three Witches from The Witching Hour and The Unexpected. You had Charity from Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion. Uh, Charity was a character that showed up in James Robinson's Starman series. And then you even had Madame Xanadu from Doorway to Nightmare. And you even had Elvira (laughs) for a little bit there in the 80s. All right. Of Sorcerers, Shining Knights, Cavemen, and Phantom Strangers. Now, Sorcerers could be Dr. Fate, the Wizard from Shazam, Felix Faust, Sargon the Sorcerer, Arion the Immortal, Merlin and Morgana Le Fay from the Demon series. That covers a wide uh, range of characters. Shining Knights could mean Sir Justin, who is also from Camelot, He was buried alive in an avalanche and woke up during the golden age of of, uh, superheroes. And then he would go on to join the Seven Soldiers of Victory and All-Star Squadron as the Shining Knight and uh, his horse-winged victory. There are other knight characters. Uh, We mentioned Silent Knight last episode, which is one of the identities that Carter Hall was reincarnated into. He first appeared around the time of other characters like Golden Gladiator and the Viking Prince. All of them like these um, time-lost heroes or knights or, you know, gladiators or princes, right? Vikings um, that would get uh, sucked up to a later time, right? So they were like out-of-time characters, you could say. Caveman, that's a direct reference to Immortal Man and Vandal Savage. And Phantom Stranger is, well, Phantom Stranger a well-known DC uh, mystery character. So that's a great little uh, paragraph there. I I liked when I read that. So page three, we start to see who some of these immortals actually are. So a figure steps from the back. His voice was like the low rumble of thunder. And that's that's clearly the wizard Shazam. We We will find out for sure later on in this issue. And then one character says, Al Ghul, do you see? So she, whoever that character is, she's talking to Rachel Ghoul. And in response, Rachel Ghoul says, calls her Mrs. Ms. Seward. And that would mean that she is Mary Seward, Queen of Blood, a vampire and leader of the cult of the Blood Red Moon from the I Vampire stories, which first appeared in House of Mystery back in uh, 1981 or so, and also seen in the New 52 I Vampire series. So that's three of the 13, Rachel Ghoul, Ms. Seward, uh, the Wizard Shazam. You have to imagine Immortal Man is in there somewhere. Um, so that's four, and that means there are nine more, nine more to go. This page also adds the final wrinkle to uh, revamping Hawkman, namely that his reincarnation didn't start after Egypt. When he was killed by his arch nemesis, Hathset, Set took away the knowledge that their lives began generations earlier. So Set had taken the past away from them. And he also took away the truth behind Nth Metal. And we will learn more of their past lives later on in in this issue. So uh, as I said, uh, the wizard Shazam steps forward. He tells everyone about a terrible being who was brought forth from the metal and who was eventually cast out and now wants to return. And this scene, if I, if I didn't say it earlier, takes place in the early decades of the 20th century, the early years of the 20th century. And then Shazam takes a knife and he plunges it into, I don't know, some kind of tablet. And Carter says, the truth would hit us like lightning. 
So I have to imagine that's when he got all of his memory memories back. That's when he learned about what actually is behind this mystery that he is trying to uncover. Okay, pages four through six. We leave that story for a moment with Carter to check up on Batman, as drawn by John Romita Jr. here. Now, last we saw him, he was in the Fortress of Solitude using an old monitor tuning fork to discover where the energies from this metal is coming from. Now he's in Greece, and he tells Wonder Woman in this scene that he found a scroll from a death cult of smith workers buried in the Alps. They described the treacherous path to the great forge of Hephaestus, and I just have to say, remember that poem I read last episode that was called The Forge by uh, Seamus Haney? I mean, it's all sort of like hitting, maybe unintentionally, but it really is hitting. More and more of it is coming out to play. So Bruce wants to talk with Hephaestus. Hephaestus is the Greek god of, uh, oh, forging? Forging, I guess, right? He's the one who created all their weapons and and would uh, create Zeus's lightning bolts on anvils and all that. And he wants to talk to him because he needs someone with a greater perspective, someone who was there when this was all set in motion. But Diana tells him that the gods are gone. She says, they believe a war is coming, a war that will not only shape the earth, but the cosmos themselves, a crisis, there's that word again, that will shake the very firmament and douse the light of creation. That last little bit of dialogue is similar to the previous Hawkman scene, where that being from the dark is described as wanting to tear down everything that is light and drag it into the dark. Now, Diana just happens to have have had her own vision, and she brings Bruce something called the Sunblade, and it's one of 12 weapons created at the dawn of human civilization, created for each of the Greek pantheon of gods. This one was created for Apollo, they were forged with the most powerful metal ever worked with at the time, called Eighth Metal. She tells Bruce it is not the pure form that he seeks. So right there, Eighth Metal. I mean, this is almost like Kirby stuff, right? Kirby mythology, where uh, he talked about when the third world died, thus rose the fourth world. And I know Morrison often hinted that Earth could very well be the birthplace of a fifth world. And now we're doing it with metal, right? Eighth gives way to ninth, which is what Nth Metal was originally called. It was called Ninth Metal, but then they shortened it to Nth Metal. So that's great. Um, Along with the Sunblade comes a warning from Diana. She says, do not throw it away for the darkness. Be wary of the gods. They have their own agendas. So Batman takes the blade, he sticks it into his belt, fire and all, and uh, we get a classic Batman butt shot. (laughs) All right, pages seven through nine. Back to our third story that we're following, this time with Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, Duke Thomas, and the Joker, who is behind some kind of energy field. Now, page eight fills us in on which Joker this is. This is the Joker that cut off his face, and he went after the Bat family in the death of the family story arc, and then he was believed to be lost as he tumbled down uh, some cliff, some hole, into parts unknown inside the Batcave. And I like how some of his dialogue feels like a throwback to Arkham Asylum by Grant Morrison, specifically when he says he wanted to get rid of the kids and rekindle the romance, the old flame. In Arkham Asylum, that Joker uh, often talked fondly of Batman, even grabbed his butt at one point. So I like that they're mixing in some of that kind of dialogue. We learn that after Joker fell in that hole in the Batcave, he was more or less returned to normal because he fell into a pool of shimmering green metal, which we learned in the Forge that is called uh, Diodesium. And uh, this metal apparently is inherent in many things, including Rachel Ghoul's Lazarus Pits. So that's why the metal restored Joker, face and all. And then he notices he's standing in front of a giant marking on the wall, which is a marking of a bat. And he says it's older than Gotham, 
older than civilization itself. Now, I'm not sure if this marking is a holdover from the return of Bruce Wayne that I talked about last issue or last episode, possibly. Uh, Joker calls it the bat behind the bat, and we will learn more about it later on in this issue. Now, we also learn that Joker discovered some of this information from people like the Court of Owls and from Crazy Quilt. And he says here, It was all a great conspiracy. The pieces planted for generations. Birds had become bats. Light had become dark. Sanity has become insanity. It was coming. I could feel it in me, even when I wasn't myself. I could still feel it in my head. An echo in the shadows calling the real me back to the surface, which is interesting. It makes me think maybe this is the reason there are multiple jokers is because this, this particular one is from the dark dimension, maybe, by saying, you know, the real me, calling me back, calling the real me back to the surface. That's an interesting line, so... We'll see how that plays out. Joker even hints that the same could be said of Duke. And he says, That pesky little force field sure is reacting strangely to your body, don't you think? Now, I'm not sure what he's alluding to. We will find out a little bit more later on in this issue. But Joker manages to use the two characters as a circuit to break out of his prison. Um, Although I questioned, how did he get in the prison if Joker was out looking for more clues. So that I'm not quite sure of the timeline there. And then there's one last cryptic message uh, to hold on to in this scene. Joker says, oh, I know how this story is going to end because it, because it all happened before. Hmm, interesting. Now, I have to throw Hal some shade here. So the lights go out and Joker is on Duke and Duke tells Hal to light up the room with his ring so, so he, they can see. Now, the ring has been on the fritz. But still, it's not like Hal couldn't get up and try to find the Joker, tackle him. I mean, is it that dark? <laughs> he's so reliant on that ring that he does nothing. It's like He's like a sucker in the scene. Okay, pages 10 through 12 by Andy Kubert. Um, most of these scenes are going in three-page increments, which is kind of interesting. We're going back to the Hawks. Now, the Immortals mentioned the tribes of man. We saw that last issue. We've known about bear and wolf, and now we've added hawk and bat. And how the arrival of the metal was brought to this world by a tear in the fabric of reality, which is like a huge multiverse alert, right? So being the archaeologist detectives that they are, the hawks find countless paintings on every continent, all over the world, hidden in the deepest cave systems, just like the Batcave, right? Um, Just like the one Joker found. And you see the image here on page 10. It's showing the hawks in a cave with with a uh, demonic image on the wall, but then there's this pool of shimmering green metal. So clearly this is something that has been popping up all over the world. And these paintings are all telling the the same story. So what I'm going to read here can be connected to what the Joker just revealed last scene. So it says here, The Hawk tribe, where Carter and Shiera's story truly began, they spoke of the betrayal by the Judas of the birds, who sided with the demon. Birds become bats, right? That's what Joker said. The demon who took the sigil of the great and terrible bat, how Carter and Shiera died fighting the scourge back into the darkness and closing the door between their worlds. And then this sort of explains how during ancient Egypt, when Hathset kills the hawks, it was as if he was recreating that scene from millennia before. So where the hawks managed to defeat the evil darkness, um, Hathset defeats the hawks. Uh, especially because Hathset was now yet another emissary of that dark being. Uh, and then we have a quote here, birds and bats forever at war. So you have the Hawkmen or the Hawk tribe, and you have the bat side of things, right? That clearly wh- wherever this dark demon comes from, he's taking on the form of a bat. So while the immortals told Carter that he needed to destroy the metal, Carter took it upon himself 
and chose to try to understand it, especially since, you know, it's the source of his power. And this is another example of how big the Hawk universe is getting. Um, not only is he an adventurer and, and a, a detective, he now becomes an organizer of some sorts. He needs to see where the power comes from. And to do that, he needs technology. He needs other adventurers. He needs to believe that the cosmos is be- benevolent and not dark. So along with the Hawks, now we see that Carter and Shiera brought in the Blackhawks. I don't want to say created the Blackhawks, although maybe they did, but they brought in the Blackhawks. They brought in the original Challengers of the Unknown. And there's a great quote here that says, we couldn't allow ourselves to be beaten down by the unknown. We would challenge it. That's awesome. So this kind of puts us, I guess, maybe around the Silver Age, um, uh, around 50s, 60s, or maybe the 50s, maybe before um, the Silver Age version of characters of heroes came back to the forefront. Maybe this is when DC was really in into science and magic and all that other stuff. All right. So Carter uses the wizard's uh, knife, the knife that we saw earlier on in the issue, the dagger, and he uses it to try to try to get even closer to solving the mystery. And by using it, there's this huge explosion. Challenger's mountain disappears. And through the void, there's this pair of eyes, including a third eye in the middle of the forehead. And it's looking back at them. And the description says, eyes waiting in the dark, waiting for something, someone. Now, pink skin, three eyes, an eye in the forehead. Is this Despero? Which is a classic Justice League of America villain? Which would be weird because Despero was just involved in the Death of Hawkman miniseries, including the notion that Despero uses Nth Metal during those issues. This almost feels like what they did with Necron in Blackest Night, right? Taking an established villain and blowing him up tenfold to make him this incredibly big bad for Blackest Night. And are they doing that with Despero? Now, I'm, again, I'm not sure when this scene is supposed to take place. Um, I I don't know how Death of Hawkman fits. I don't know if they're just trying to rewrite it or avoid it, but it just happened. It reminds me of when DC put out Death of New Gods, even though Grant Morrison was playing with the death of the New Gods during Final Crisis. So why tell Death of Hawkman if you're just going to use the same story beats and the same antagonist for metal, if that's who it is. Again, I don't know. I, I haven't read metal number one. I don't know who this is. So this could totally, totally be reactionary. But again, pink skin, two eyes, one in the middle, mm, screams Despero to me. So we'll see. Okay, pages 13 through 15, halfway through the book now. Back to Batman and JRJR artwork. The Sunblade has led Batman to a desert in Arizona. He discovers a character there named Dubelix, who was created by Jack Kirby during his Jimmy Olsen comic days. And when you have Dubelix, Cadmus can't be far behind. So Dubelix tells Batman that the DNA Project, which is another name for Cadmus, I believe, uh, might even be the original Kirby name, uh, the DNA Project has been tracking beings that have something in their blood. Um, I'm assuming this is the first mention of this. But the project also managed to find a way to activate these beings with a power source that they didn't understand. So you have beings with something in them that when activated gives them power. Keep hold of that notion because that's going to come back. So we get another dark matter reference here. Dubelix continues by saying... See for yourself, Batman. See the damage the cursed metal has wrought. And we get this image of this giant Hulk-looking character, and this is damage from the Dark Matter ash can that I talked about two episodes ago. By the way, the word Cadmus has Greek origins. Uh, Cadmus is one of the greatest hero, uh, greatest heroes and slayers of monsters before the days of Heracles. He is credited with introducing the original alphabet to the Greeks, who adapted it to form their own Greek alphabet. And the project takes its name from him because he would create warriors from the teeth of a dragon. 
which is something Cadmus does, right? Like it creates DNA aliens and it creates clones. But look at that tooth reference, right? Like that's the very thing that started Batman down this path in the first place, a tooth from a talon um, of, of the Court of Owls. So I thought that was interesting. Batman references Black Lightning and the Outsiders on this page, so apparently they are still in play in the present, except they're just behind the scenes. And then Dubalix faints or dies, I'm not sure. Again, he's a clone, so who knows with him. And we get kind of out of the blue, but maybe not really, an appearance by Talia, Talia al Ghul, the daughter of Ra's al Ghul who tells Bruce that her father is also on a journey. And she references the scene that we just saw in the beginning of the, of the book uh, where the immortals learned all about uh, the mystery. And they learned about uh, this dagger. And Ra's al Ghul is trying to get this dagger that was created from Nth Metal. And eventually Carter got a hold of it, and that's what made the Challenger's Mountain disappeared, and that's where Raish found it decades later among the wreckage of Challenger's Mountain. So there obviously was some time between um, the scene with the 13 Immortals, the scene where Challenger's Mountain disappears, and now um, from when Raish al Ghul finds it. So Raish al Ghul found the blade. For some reason, he sold it. And I assume it fell into the hands of Cadmus at this base and that they used the blade to activate the beings with the metal in their blood. So now Talia has it again. She says that a true war is coming and even hints that Batman has one of the potentials living under his roof, which must mean Duke, right? I mean, Joker is alluding to the same thing. We're getting tons of hints. We will see this play out later this issue. And we also get another Dark Matter reference here when Batman says to Talia, I've heard rumblings, the great assassin you've brought back into the fold. To which Talia replies, you have nothing to fear from the silencer. And in that image of Talia, you can see on her forearm uh, a tattoo or branding that is the same branding used on the character of Silencer that we saw in the Ashcan. Now, Bruce being Bruce and realizing he's closer than ever to his answers, he does exactly what Wonder Woman told him not to do and trades the Sunblade for the dagger that Talia found. So, And he even says, I'll trade the eighth form of the metal for the ninth. And says to her, I hope that if he ever needs a favor from her, that she will answer his call. Dumb, 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 dumb. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I can't imagine it's going to play out well. So this is where it starts to really come clear, if you haven't figured it out already, that the blade was forged by the power of Shazam, which is what Talia says. Now, a little bit of a tangent. Back in the breakdown episode of the Dark Matter Ashcan book, I mentioned how this group of characters used in the Dark Matter concept, and now in these two one-shot one-shots, it all feels like they're coming from World's Finest Comics from the late 70s, early 80s. Superman, Batman, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, Plastic Man, Challengers of the Unknown, Black Lightning had stories there, and now even Shazam, Captain Marvel, who had a lengthy run as a backup tale. So um, I have no evidence of this. It just, maybe it's just a major coincidence, but um, they're clearly pulling from, from something. All right, pages 16 through 19. This is a four-page sequence. Jim Lee on the artwork. The fourth page is by John Romita Jr. Duke and Hal finally catch up with the Joker, who is destroying one of Batman's machines with a crowbar. Joker and crowbars, right? And he's doing it because he can't let Batman dig any deeper. He even says to Hal, this is what your alien bosses sent you here to stop. If he uses the machine... That'll be the end of everything. And then Joker says to Duke, there's something different about you. And here's the first sort of big oh damn moment for this issue. And it is, it is something that's causing some controversy. And it, it involves Duke and what Dubalik said about beings with metal in their blood and about power beings in the DCU in general. So the Joker says here, Did you know at Gotham Mercy Hospital, 
there's an automatic flag that goes up when something unusual is detected in a blood sample. It's a kind of metal toxicity, but they can't really track any of the effects because it sure as hell isn't iron. It's not even mercury. The first doctor to put that flag up, the program only gave him four characters to designate the flag. But he did the best he could. And I've seen that file for both you and your mom. M-E-T-A. Boom. Meta. The very thing that superpowered beings in the DC universe have been called since the invasion event of the late 80s. Meta-humans. Meta. M-E-T-A. Scientists only had four characters. Couldn't spell metal. So he spells meta. <laughs> Which is all very meta, right? Now look, I like the name metal as an event. Um, not only... Uh, because the story is about Nth Metal and how it will change the DC Universe. Um, not only metal in terms of a feeling, right, or type of music, an ideology, you know, rock in your face, the sign of the horns, right, that hand gesture, which if you think about, that sign of the horns could very well be like what Batman looks like because of his pointy ears, right? Um, and the first issue of Metal is the JLA in the form of the sign of the horns. So clearly, you know, again, they're playing with that um, title. Now, I've also thought of it this way. Um, you could use an alternative spelling of metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, which is described as a person's ability to cope well with difficulties or to face a demanding situation in a spirited and resilient way which is what Hawkman is doing with all the information he learned and Batman as well. This, this, is, this is testing the metal of their characters. And now we have this in-story and yet metatextual DC meaning where meta, M-E-T-A, has always meant that these beings have this special metal in their bodies. And I know some people don't like this idea. Some people do. Again, I tend to love it. I, I never was a fan of meta in the first place. It's kind of like midichlorians in Star Wars. It's too much explanation. You know, I, I get it. Marvel has the mutant gene, but that's for the X-Men corner of their universe, right? It doesn't define their entire um, stable of characters. But the metagene started to go too far, especially in the wrong writer's hands. They would say Green Arrow was a meta. They would say Deathstroke was a meta or Batman. And I hated it. I hated that anybody with a special skill had to be pared down to being called a meta. So now maybe the scope of metals, metas will lessen and it'll just be those beings who are caught up in this battle between light and dark. This is a total redefining of a long-standing DCU concept, almost 30 years worth of it. And you know what? Who knows if it'll stick, but I'm all in on the change, even if it's silly. And you know what? Snyder and company, they said that was the point in the first place, right? Big, bombastic, outrageous uh, notions and outrageous concepts. So anyway, okay, back to the book there. So Joker says it. He says, uh, Batman's been tracking as many of you as he can for years. A whole new generation of superheroes and supervillains, the soldiers of the war that will rip this world apart. So again, maybe, maybe it's going to go um, to a place where they're not going to use meta for every super being, just a handful. Maybe even the ones that we will see in Dark Matter. Obviously, Duke is a meta as well. Uh, last issue, Duke mentions to Hal that he doesn't have a code name yet. So the Joker more or less baptize him, baptizes him with one right here in this next sequence. He says, I know what you are here to do. You'll let him see in the dark. That's the role you're destined to play. You are the signal. It's, that's just so comic booky, right? I love it. Um, and again, that is something. That's exactly what's going to happen in uh, another couple of pages. And then Hal finally gets back in the game by using his Air Force skills to pilot a bat jet. 
which is cool. All right, pages 20 through 21. This is The Hawks Again by Andy Kubert. And this is the last time we see him in uh, this story. So we're reading his final entry in his journal that we've been reading for these past two issues. And some time has passed even more. And Carter visits the Thanagarian ship that started this whole mess for him back in ancient Egypt. And the ship is all broken down and decrepit. So clearly time has passed. And he says, um, it's interesting. So he talks about the spirit of wonder and discovery and how he says earlier in the comic that he wasn't going to allow his team to be broken down by the unknown, right? And it really feels like here he's kind of at his last reserve. He's kind of at his last amount of effort. Um, He once believed solving mysteries and using science made things a little better. But now he's wondering if the Thanagarians that came to Earth weren't sending a signal, uh, not of gifts and knowledge, but a warning, a warning signal to hold humanity in its tracks. And then Carter lays out one of the one of the baddest, most blistering criticisms of humanity I think I've ever read in comics. He says he believes the Thanagarians were here to stop us in our tracks. So the universe would never fall prey to the ambitions of a small world that even millennia later can barely get past its own moon. Ouch! Damn, Carter. You are depressed. Now again, I'm not sure when the sequence takes place. I have to imagine it's maybe recently in comic book time. But Carter has figured out how to pierce the barrier to this other place, this dark dimension, we get a shot of the modern version of the Blackhawks, I'm, I'm assuming, lying in defeat as uh, Carter's enemy gets closer and closer. And Carter uses the remains of the Thanagarian ship to, as he says, walk towards my end alone so that no man could ever be foolish enough to follow. I guess he's tired of seeing his friends defeated and destroyed. So he's taking it upon himself to go to this other dimension. Now, before he does that, he gives his journal to some mystery figure, or as Carter says, to a family that has always been most loyal to the birds, with the command to hide it unless I fail and the beast comes again. Then and only then will the journal reveal itself. They must stay far from the dark and frightening truth lurking under the world. Now, I'm not sure who this is, although it could very well have been revealed in Metal Number 1. Now, from this particular panel, though, right away I was thinking the Knights, Ted Knight and Jack Knight, right? K-N-I-G-H-T. It's a large house with a carriage house and a mailbox and a man in a hat. It could also look very Smallville-esque, but, you know, I don't think so. Um, I love that line, loyal to the birds. I don't know what that means. I mean, I could sit here and list tons of bird-related heroes in the DCU. Or maybe it's close to home and it's Carter's own family. But I don't know where his son Hector and Lida are at this time. We talked about them uh, in last episode. So I mentioned how um, both Hector and Lida had a son named Daniel and how that son went on to become the new dream of the Endless in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. So again, loyal to the birds could mean a lot of things. Um, I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'll let the event eventually reveal itself. Okay, page 22 through 28. This is the longest sequence in the book, and the artists really jump around. We got Kubert, we got Ramita Jr., we got Lee. It even looks like Claus Jansen is screaming through on the inks, but we are back in the Batcave. Joker has been caught, and he's screaming that he's the good guy in all of this, and he shouts that a dark crisis is coming. Ooh, I'm telling you, the crisis kid in me is all a tingle with these issues. Now, earlier, Hal asked the Joker what was the joke in all of this, and now we get an answer to it. He says, look, a dark crisis is coming, and here you are. Two bright burning lights calling it forward. So, you know, Green Lantern obviously deals with light, and we're going to find out that Duke, as a signal 
is also going to be dealing with light. And we see it right here because quite literally something erupts from Duke and it's a light. It sets Joker free. So, of course, this is when Batman comes and he's flipping out on Jordan um, because the Joker has escaped and his machine is all wrecked. And then Jordan returns the anger uh, about keeping Joker prisoner. But he says something that I really can't believe Bruce didn't throw right back in his face. So Bruce says that he needs the Joker. That's why he's been in this prison. And Hal responds with, for what? To fill every gap in this insane conspiracy theory with lies? Secret medals with incredible power shaping human history? I mean, come on. Wait, if you look at the panel, Hal Jordan, as he's saying this, is wearing a secret medal with incredible power that can shape things. Duh! I don't know if the writers wanted this to be that much on the nose, but it is, and I love it. I love that Hal can say something like that. Hal, who has seen over the years so many amazing things, and yet he can be that literal-minded that he can't even see right there on his hand uh, something that he's criticizing Bruce for. I what a, that panel just hit me, and I I just I had to talk about it for a little bit. All right, so Bruce decides, you know what, he's going to explain what's going on, and not only about his mission, but also some of what I assume readers read during the Snyder and Greg Capullo bat epic that uh, they were writing for many years. So he talks about this machine that the Joker destroyed. Um, It's on the cover of this issue, right? And he calls it the final invention. And he's using it so that there will always be a Batman. And he says that he used the machine to heal himself in the same battle where the Joker fell in the hole. Um, But there was metal in Batman's skull, So he was having visions while in the machine. And the visions were versions of himself dying over and over again. This is what drove him on. And he says here, This metal I couldn't escape in any facet of my life, as though it were targeting me over and over for some unknown reason, as though it wanted me to understand it. I mean, hell, what are bullets made out of, right? Metal. Batman's very existence is because of metal. I thought that was a nice little bit of dialogue there. Now, the next bit of dialogue is straight out of DC cosmology, but on a different scale this time. So Batman says, I began to rebuild the machine from the ground up. I wanted to look inside the dark, to the source of the metal's power. I knew that once I did, it would all come together. It would all make sense. And just a page earlier, he says, I've spent a long time putting these pieces together, finding what I needed to look back into the dark. Now, does any of this sound familiar? In DC lore, what happens to people who look back, who create devices to look at the source of all things? We're talking Krona. We're talking the guardians of the universe. We're talking the origins of the universe, secrets that shouldn't be revealed, the very essence of what made up the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? The hand shaping the universe um, that Krona looked back on and spread evil all throughout the universe. And when when he built a machine to look back to the origins of the universe, he managed to create the multiverse. But here it's told kind of like on a much human, much more human scale. So when I read that, that, and you can almost read sort of like a despair in Batman's voice, that he had to create this machine, he had to have it all make sense, he had to look at the source, I thought, oh, ooh, that is cool, that is neat. Again, I don't know if the writers did this on purpose, but it, it resonated with me in a very strong way. So again, Hal responds and he says, look... What you're doing caught the attention of the Guardians of the Universe. Duh, right? Because they know what it's like to mess up while trying to figure out knowledge that you shouldn't be figuring it out. And then Batman replies and says, maybe Hal should be questioning them since his ring seems to cower in the face of a pure strain of this metal. So again, leading to speculation that I said about... um, Maybe the Green Lantern metal is made up of uh, 
the same metal or is a sister to that metal. Now, when Duke questions what the Joker had said about him to Batman, Bruce gives him an answer that helps to define the title of this one-shot by saying, The Joker lies, Duke. I never tried to shape you. I only wanted to be there when you decided what you were going to become. And that's what casting does, right? The definition I said way back in the beginning. It shapes. So again, if we look at this giant mystery as liquid metal, uh, Snyder and company taking the origins of the DC universe and, and liquefying it, and now putting it into a new casting, putting it into a new light, a new, new perspective. So I thought that was cool. Batman pulls out the Shazam blade, and that triggers something in Duke. So even though the machine Batman had built is destroyed, Duke, because he's a signal, just like Joker said, Duke can key into what it could be used for. He can shine a light. And um, now that he's in contact with pure metal, he can use the blade. Batman can use the inherent abilities within Duke. Um, Hal Jordan throws Duke uh, a ring, a Green Lantern ring, and all of these things can be used, and Duke manages to recreate the final invention. And we see images of Psycho Pirate's mask, of the Electrum from the Tooth from Court of Owls. We see that there are hyperelastic molecules from Plastic Man, ancient Themyscarin and, and Atlantean artifacts, which are the bracelets of Wonder Woman and a trident for Aquaman, relics of order and chaos, such as Dr. Fate's helmet, and then the diadesium. Now you add to that the Shazam uh, dagger, and all of these pieces are coming together, along with the final invention, and Batman can finally see what he needs to see. So by using uh, Duke and all of this stuff, he tries to venture into the abyss, but what he sees is just darkness. Nothing. Incidentally, it's been speculated because there's an appearance of the Psycho Pirate's mask that maybe that's why that mask reacted to the Watchmen comedian button in the DC Rebirth one-shot and also in the button four-part story. Or it could just be a coincidence, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll find out uh, at some point or another. Now, all of this stuff that Batman is going through, trying to use all this stuff to see what it is, whatever it is he wants to see. It's all layered with the final entry in Carter Hall's journal, and it acts as a bookend to the journal entry that started the Forge one-shot. In Forge, he talks about the feeling you get at the beginning of an adventure, uh, one that started at his origin and began his journey. Now the narration states, there is a feeling you get at the end of an adventure, which is the end of Batman's quest. Everything he's done up to this point, he's trying to finally see what it is he wants to see, and he gets nothing, uh, which is kind of sad. But there's really nice writing there. I think it's a nice cap capper um, to these two preludes, and I like when they bookend stuff like that. Plus, it gives more support for the title. So in the narration... You, they say, with every step forward in your course toward knowledge, your story cooled and hardened, just like what happens in a casting. So I thought that was cool. And then finally, the narration says, an ending that chooses you. And even Joker stated that way back a few pages when he said, all the pieces are connected and the puzzle always comes together in the form of a bat which leads us to the final two pages of this one shot. Pages 29 and 30, 3,000 miles below Gotham City, which is where we would encounter the Earth's outer core. Um, and they believe it's made of superheated liquid molten lava. And uh, the lava is made up of mostly iron and nickel. So uh, you could kind of see a metal connection there. All right, so deep down 3,000 miles, we see a group maybe a tribe, who said that they had hid from Batman whatever it was he was to see. And they say, the final seal is broken. Let us see them. Let us see what he should have seen if we had not prepared him correctly. The dark days are over. 
the dark nights are coming. And nights are nights is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-S. Now, is this the immortals? Um, or is it a cult worshiping the demon trapped in the dark? I mean, who could live 3,000 miles beneath the Earth's crust? Now, there are only 10 of them drawn. That could be a mistake. I think these pages are drawn by J.R.J.R., so I don't know. I don't know if it's meant to be the immortals, but they are corrupted, or it's a whole other group. I, I am assuming it's a whole other group. They are standing in front of an image of a bat, and then we see we see an image of the collected Dark Knights, and these are characters that will comprise some of the tie-in one-shots that spin off from the main metal event. And these have been solicited and we've had images online of who these Dark Knights are. In this image, we have eight characters. Four of them have logos on them. Two of them don't. Uh, one is standing sort of behind the first group and he looks like a doomsday character. And then there's a giant hooded figure behind all of them. So from left to right on this image, uh, we have the Batman who laughs, who I assume is Joker, we have the Dawnbreaker, who is a Green Lantern analog. He has those tubes going to his helmet. We have Red Death, which is Flash with the lightning bolts. We have the Murder Machine, which is Cyborg. The Merciless with the Wonder Woman logo. And finally, the Drowned, who is Aquaman. And then behind them is the Devastator, who is Doomsday. So apparently... Um, in this dark dimension, all of these characters are different versions of Batman, I think. Um, but a Batman who, you know, found the power of the Speed Force and became Red Death, who found a Green Lantern ring and became the Dawnbreaker. I think that's how it's going to play out. So we'll see once we get to those tie-ins. And finally, the last quote of the issue, lettered over the image of the hooded figure behind all of them, and it says, and with them, the true father of Batman. Dun, dun, dun. Which I guess that's what the hooded figure is supposed to be. Some kind of bat avatar. Or maybe it's Despero. I don't know. Or whoever the big bad with the three eyes is supposed to be. So, cool last two pages. Um, tying us in and getting us ready for medal number one. Whew. It takes long to do these breakdowns. <laughs> uh, so some questions were answered from The Forge. We learned at least um, some of how Joker knows all of this stuff. And we learned which one this Joker actually is. But then, uh, you know, now we have a whole bunch more questions. All right. So with The Forge done and now the casting, I can finally read the first issue of Metal that came out yesterday as I record this. And once I wrap my brain around that issue, I'll do a breakdown of that comic. And I will put that out, uh, you know, later this week. So again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope it helped to fill in the blanks and uh, may maybe make you think uh, a little differently about what you saw on the page. And uh, some of it, like I said, is just my speculation. Some of it is just me you know, making dot making connections that maybe aren't really there, but I think it's cool to talk about these kind of things. So let me know what you think. Peter at thedailyreels.com is my email. Visit the website, thedailyreels.com. You can tweet at me, Peter J. Reels, and please, by all means, subscribe on iTunes. This has been The Daily Reels, episode 395. Talk to you soon. <laughs>